Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Chronic illness is the leading cause of death in the United States. The major reason, prescription drug spending increased more than sevenfold in recent decades. But experts are increasingly documenting food's healing properties, using medically tailored meals as medicine. Food as medicine is proving to be a key to both better health and reduced spending on prescription drugs and overall health care costs. Boston's own community servings helped pioneer using food as medicine, and other programs are expanding across the country. Later in the show, the Grammy Awards are perhaps the biggest prize in music, but for years, the Recording Academy seems to have prioritized artists who sing in English. To me, it's just a great reflection of how popular culture and certain segments of popular culture in the United States have long rejected Spanish. But this year, Puerto Rican rapper and singer Bad Bunny's Grammy nomination for Album of the Year has broken a huge barrier. But first, joining me remotely is Olivia Weinstein, Culinary Nutrition Director for Boston Medical Center. Welcome, Olivia. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad to have you. Also with me, Jean Terranova. She's the Senior Director of Policy and Research at Community Servings. Hi, Jean. Hi, great to be here. And also with me, Paul Hepfer, CEO of Project Open Hand in California. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Thanks, and happy to be here. So let me start this way, because I think um, we want to get our heads around what food as medicine means. Olivia, could you talk to us about what that means, actually? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the literature proves that having enough food and the right types of food is essential to both manage disease, prevent disease, and and really help uh, the, the large spread of those diseases related to the foods we eat. And so I think food as medicine is understanding that on a healthcare and clinical level and applying it to the patients we serve. And Paul, what would you add to that? I would add that, you know, When we're designing a nutrition intervention for people, it really focuses on their particular healthcare condition and and therefore the nutrition regime that they're provided with is really addressing that particular health condition in hopes of improving and moving them out of an acute state. So what I would ask of both of you or to respond to is that, you know, uh, for a long time, indigenous people and other uh, groups have have used sort of culturally uh, relevant foods to treat, quote, I, I wouldn't say disease, but maybe conditions. People who didn't feel well, that seemed to work. I have a very dear friend who is Chinese. I mean, she would listen to this and go, duh, we know this. We've been using herbs for a long time. So I'd like to talk about or have you react to 
is what you are doing now in a more sophisticated way, I would say, um, because these are medically tailored meals, sort of building on those traditions? And is it an acknowledgement that there were always these healing properties of food and this is just amped up now? Paul, I can start with you. I, I think it's more an acknowledgement of how far we've come from associating ourselves with natural foods and non-processed food. For decades now, we keep moving further and further away from, from what food really is when it's grown and provided to people. And we've processed it, we've fried it, we've added so many things to it that's actually led to the, the uh, epidemic of chronic health conditions. So yes, you I, I do believe you're fully correct in that, that many, many generations, many cultures had it right long time ago. And, and over the last 30, 40 years, we've actually moved away from what was the healthiest type of food we could consume. And what would you add to that, um, Olivia? Yeah, Paul, I completely agree. And I think of it as almost a reintroduction. So this was something that once was and then kind of left our daily living and we're reintroducing it back in. Okay, so both of your organizations, Community Servings and Project Open Hand, were pioneers in using food as medicine. But there was a real reason for um, looking and using tailored meals in this way originally. And Jean, why don't you tell us about that? What was the spark that led to the founding, the eventual founding of Community Servings? Certainly, the, the spark was really um, the, the AIDS epidemic. Um, and so um, Community Servings was founded in 1990 to provide meals um, to people who were living with HIV and AIDS. Um, and at the time, the AIDS, an AIDS diagnosis was really a death sentence and providing meals was the only thing we could do to keep people alive um, and keep people from dying of malnutrition in the form of AIDS wasting syndrome. And what immediately became clear to um, the folks that were working with people who were dying of AIDS that, because they were dying of AIDS, could they see improvement with the nutritious meals? They could certainly see improvement in that they were receiving calories and they were also receiving emotional support and community support. And so many of these people were isolated um, from their families and from their own communities. And organizations like Community Servings and Project Open Hand and others across the country were literally the only kind of human touch that people had um, in addition to receiving the nutrition. So it was a lifting of spirits as well as uh, nourishing of people's bodies. So, so I want to make clear that uh, community servings has been around a long time. Some people may just now be hearing about it, but you're more than three decades old. We are, but we keep evolving. And so, you know, in the early days, we were providing these services only to people living with HIV and AIDS. But um, as the disease progressed and medications became available um, and people started living longer, we started, you know, uh, providing services um, to address comorbid conditions um, and, and really leverage that expertise as, um, you know, medications became available and the disease was no longer a death sentence um, to provide the services to people with um, other life-threatening illnesses. So, Paul, one of the things I learned um, in preparing for this conversation is that your both of your the founding of your uh, organizations were remarkably 
similar in terms of the, the original motivation for coming together. So talk a little bit about how HIV was important uh, to your organization uh, or ended up uh, being the motivating factor uh, in how Project Open Hand came to be. Our founder, Ruth Brinker, who, who actually there's a, a new award-winning short documentary made about her was was our founder 37 years ago and and you know she, what I put I'm going to put you on pause because I have a little clip from the documentary from uh, with Ruth Brinker Ruth Brinker um, who was a founder um, she cooked and delivered meals um, this was uh, 1985 when she was uh, cooking and delivering meals to San Francisco's gay men and this is a clip from the Ruth Brinker story and it's a new documentary about her and Project Open Hand. The newspapers would be full of people that were dying of AIDS, but most of them weren't dying of AIDS. They were dying of malnutrition. I think that's a remarkable statement because, again, we thought that the disease AIDS was was really the, the, the factor, the strongest factor leading to their death. But malnutrition, you know, you wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, that's right. It, and, you know, I, I think. Um, one thing we learned during the recent COVID pandemic, when when nationally we were talking about um, how exposed the nation was, particularly the more frail individuals to food insecurity, really what we should have been talking about and or what we should talk about is nutrition insecurity, because it's not just access to calories, it's access to the, the right types of food for you to thrive and be healthy on. I want to make clear early on in this conversation and keep repeating it because I want people to understand it. Um, understanding the positive impact of food as medicine with people who are suffering from chronic illnesses is not something that you just sort of came up with. This this is documented. Uh, this is work that has been documented over and over again and that all of your organizations are continuing to document. In fact, Jean, uh, community Servings has been involved in a number of published studies, which lays out how food as medicine um, has proven to be so impactful for people who have these chronic illnesses. That's right. We've been engaged in um, research for the past seven years. When you provide medically tailored meals to people who are experiencing food insecurity and chronic illness, um, you'll see a 16% net cost savings, and that's monthly, and that is net the cost of the meals um, in healthcare spending. And that's a consequence of significantly fewer um, acute care services, um, such as inpatient hospital admissions, that's 49% fewer inpatient hospital admissions, 70% fewer um, emergency department visits, and 72% fewer admissions to skilled nursing facilities. Um, and so, you know, these are not only very expensive services, but they're also really traumatic. And so being able to um, spare people from having to experience um, these types of acute services in institutional settings um, is just really important. So a couple of things I want to raise here. Um, in September, the White House, and one of you referred to it, had a conference on hunger, nutrition, and health. The first in 53 years. Uh, the last was last one was in 1969, and out of that conference, a number of things that we're now familiar with uh, uh, came to be. So, women and children, 
women, infants, and children, the, the supplemental nutrition programs for that, the SNAP program, supplemental nutrition assistance program, school breakfast, lunch programs, dietary guidelines, and nutrition facts label. That's Those were really forward-thinking um, kinds of um, uh, programmatic and policy change that came out of that conference 53 years ago. Now, here we are, fast forward, and what a lot of light was being shined on what you all are doing. Uh, this whole movement, this whole understanding about food as medicine and what it means both in terms of improving health overall and also reducing what we all know is our runaway health care costs. So I'd like to, um, Olivia, talk to me about just what it means to have food as medicine highlighted now in ways it hadn't been through the White House and what you would hope would come from that? Yeah, so as a dietitian, um, this is like the most uh, perfect way to validate our field and our interest and our passion and the work we do. Um, understanding the relationship between food and health on a national level, I think, I mean, I couldn't ask for a better way to recognize it. And at BMC, at Boston Medical Center, uh, we address the the problem of both food insecurity, and I loved the term nutrient security or nutritionally secure, um, a little differently. So we have our rooftop farm, we have a therapeutic food pantry that offers foods that are both medically tailored, but then are also culturally preferred. And then we have our teaching kitchen where we teach cooking skills related to the foods um, provided in the pantry. And I think medically tailored meals are something that are being recognized and mostly because of the healthcare utilization. And it's such a wonderful finding and an exciting finding. And what I'm looking forward to moving forward is, is how teaching people skills um, and providing them the resources to do the behavior we're, we're promoting at home um, has an impact on health. I, I want to pause and just say uh, what you're doing there with that pantry is the first hospital-based therapeutic food pantry in the country. I mean, it's pretty revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely. We started in 2001. Um, and since then, we've renovated, gotten bigger, and have added our, our rooftop farm and teaching kitchen. And now, what Olivia has raised, uh, Paul, are important points about, you know, getting the clients. So now we've documented that this, this is important, that it works. And now you have clients who come to you that are referred by doctors, um, generally speaking. But it has to taste good. Um, and it has to be, as she said, culturally relevant often. And in California, that's particularly something that you have to pay attention to because you have so many, you have a wide variety of, uh, of groups um, to respond to. That, that's true. And, and I think that's actually been one of our bigger challenges over the years because we, have, we do have such a, a wonderfully diverse population here in the, in the Bay Area. And you know, as most of our our colleague providers around the country are nonprofit organizations, we're we're from the community, we're of the community, we're supported by the community. But as a nonprofit, um, we've generally probably spend a lot less on research and development as for-profit companies. And we're seeing now a number of for-profit corporations kind of flood this food as medicine space and and really not paying attention to whole foods, uh, non-processed foods. Um, and, and it's a really a concern of ours because they're they're also not able to meet the needs of the local 
folks that, that have very diverse backgrounds. So one thing we're working on now at Project Open Hand is we are trying to invest in, in nutrition innovation, trying to make our foods and our meals and our groceries more culturally relevant. Uh, because if people don't respond or aren't interested in what you're providing, then it's it's like having medicine that people don't take. And it's not going to have a, a health impact and help people be healthier. I want you to go back and emphasize this, because what you're saying, I think, somewhat politely, is that there are a lot of people out here kind of scamming, saying, hey, you know, we're here's some food. You don't have to go through any kind of program or talk to your doctor or think about it. Here's some food and just, you know, eat this and you'll be better. What you're saying is what is documented and what Gene has uh, spoken about earlier in those studies are there is a way um, to tailor these meals in a very specific way to clients. And that is what works, not just you sort of willy nilly pick some stuff. That, that's correct. And and what I what I wanted to say, and I'll say now is that there are companies that will serve you a pizza and throw some arugula on it and call it a medically tailored meal. And that's just not fair to the industry. It's not fair to the research. And, and it's just not true either. So these our, our network of nonprofits have been doing this for, like we said, 30 plus years, and we really refined refine the medically tailored meals and really make it responsive to the individual's needs. Okay. Um, Gene, let's talk about how it works. Um, who gets to be a client, how they end up um, in the hands of community servings or project open hand. Um, what are the costs to those clients? So the, the cost to the clients is is zero. So we, we are looking at philanthropy, but more, you know, Recently and increasingly, we are looking to healthcare payers to reimburse for the meals. Um, there's an uh, innovative um, Medicaid waiver in Massachusetts um, that includes a program called Flexible Services, in which um, participating um, organizations, health systems, can be reimbursed for nutrition and housing support services. Um, and through this, we have a number of contracts um, where basically a healthcare provider can um, prescribe a meal that um, you know is refer a patient is referred um, by the healthcare provider um, and is connected with our nutrition team to basically assess what their needs are um, to come up with a customized diet plan um, for this individual um, and then it's delivered to their home. Um, so the cost is to the healthcare payer or to philanthropy, um, or in some cases to grants. We still do have some government grants funding people with HIV, but we never charge the client. I just want to point out that that the connection with uh, the Massachusetts program of uh, Medicare is unique. That's not something that um, across the board is happening. So that's and it's pretty new to community servings, right? It is fairly new. It actually launched um, in uh, right at the time of the pandemic in March of 2020. Um, and the, the waiver that is sort of allowing this to happen um, through our Medicaid program is being renewed for another five years and it's being expanded because it's been so successful. The efforts by folks like yourself and Project uh, Open Hand are still relatively small. I looked at this Food is Medicine Coalition, which is a group of all of you all who are providing medically tailored 
meals, and there's also a group of medically tailored food and nutrition service providers. There are seven of them on the website and 20 on the medically tailored meal providers. So if you think about that across the country, that's not a lot of folks who are getting served by what has we have discussed is now documented to be extremely effective. Um, and so the only way to both of your points, to all of your points, that this can be expanded is if there is some support from a Medicare or a Medicaid uh, program. And I'm told all it would take is if the Health and Human Services Secretary would okay it. And that would be that. So there's lobbying, of obviously, by all of you all to move that along. Um, and I guess we'll see what happens since it's just been a few months since the, since the White House conference. But I just want to put that on the table that that, you know, that would make a huge difference, would it not, uh, Paul Hepfer, if if you, you know, had that kind of support? Yeah, it, it absolutely would. And, and like you mentioned, there are efforts throughout the state and regionally where um, where some Medicare pr uh, private health insurance companies have already recognized this and they're adding it onto their portfolio of medical interventions for certain health conditions. And Olivia, does it help that um, working with a dietitian, as you've noted, is a billable medical service. Does that help um, expand these kinds of services uh, to a wider group of folks? Yes, absolutely. So as a dietitian, you can bill for M&T codes, both for individual counseling, but also group. And so for our culinary medicine classes where we teach cooking skills, we can bill kind of under the umbrella of a group visit, um, but it would make it much more uh, doable if there was a direct billing code and then integrating it into standard clinical practice. And so right now we work a bit as like an adjunct service and for really highly motivated providers, we can refer patients, but it takes a lot of people and a lot of champions. And so it would help us to have um, more billing opportunities to really integrate it into standard of care and provide it for every patient that's wanting a nutritional intervention and nutritional support. All right, now let's take a listen to uh, a couple of clients uh, from both of your programs um, who have uh, very much benefited from the services. This is, uh, first is Diane Sims. She was referred to community services um, and uh, when she was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. NECN, which is a local station here, spoke to her in 2014 when she was still suffering from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, that made it difficult for her to breathe, but she was very grateful for the help that having these medically tailored uh, meals provided to her. The days when I am having my fatigue moments, I know it's there. All I have to do is heat and eat. So it's, it's a blessing within itself. Likewise, Michelle Pagoni, 58 years old, diagnosed with diabetes, and she became a client of Project Open Hand in Oakland. Um, and she talked to NPR's Allison Aubrey about how the program had, had really changed her life, not just her health. It's amazing that I'm eating vegetables over my junk food. Uh, cooked carrots. And another, another one I'm actually eating is Brussels sprouts that I'm starting to enjoy. The way I'm feeling now is I have more energy and the food is just helping me all around. All right. So, hey. We, we know it works. <laughs> We've proven it. Um, people are benefiting. Um, what's the next step in, in getting more attention to 
something like the food as medicine growing movement. And um, we've talked about what can happen with government uh, support. But I'm just talking about now letting the rest of us understand the power of this and, and maybe begin to tout it um, in other ways. Well, certainly uh, having it featured here um, is, is really a great opportunity and just, you know, important for people who are not in the thick of it to just understand the benefits. Um, and and ha- hearing from actual program recipients like you just played um, is is critical because, um, you know, it's not really, you know, there's a lot of science here and there's a lot of uh, research and data and so forth, but it really does um, have also a lot of heart and a lot of soul. And I think that you have to um, get back to that and, um, and, and share that with people who um, might not otherwise really care about the, d- the details of the data and the research. Can you think of any specific person over the years that you know um, Community Servings has helped that, you know, comes to mind when you think about uh, a, just such a, a wonderful example of, of, of what can happen? Uh, certainly, we we have a page, uh, a client who um, is here, uh, you know, for a heart transplant and has has really needed the meals in order to just be well enough for that um, for that procedure, um, and he receives the meals as well as his family, um, and it's helped him really understand exactly what he is supposed to eat. It's helped him. Um, achieve the kind of weight that he needs to in order to be ready for this procedure. Um, And again, just kind of mentally, you know, it's a stress reliever to know that there's a nutritionist who is, um, you know, scientifically um, putting together that guideline and that meal so that he does not have the anxiety of wondering um, if what he's eating is going to further damage his health. So often in these kinds of discussions, people hear, Okay, here we go again. There's some more money being funneled to, you know, what feels like to them, a, you know, a feel-good kind of situation, even though, as we've said, um, there's documentation for this. Um, but what can usually be helpful in these discussions, and it's the data is here, um, is, are talking about um, what are the savings along the way. And we mentioned earlier about the overall health savings for our health care costs. But I just want to put some meat on those bones, that the cost of six months of meals is about equal to the cost of one night in a hospital, that roughly. This is information that um, was reported by USA Today in a, in a special uh, report looking at food as medicine. It's just a whole other game, Paul, right? It, it, it is. And, and no matter um, what your um, initial... No matter what your initial take is on whether or not you think um, government should be paying for food for people, when you see the numbers pencil out, like you just said, I I really don't see how there could be any controversy related to this type of healthcare intervention. What do you want people to know about uh, food medicine that we have perhaps not touched on that it's important for them to think about as we uh, consider expanding these efforts in many different ways? I think it's really important to understand it in the context of health equity 
um, and knowing that the services um, are provided to people who are disproportionately impacted by diet-related chronic illness and food insecurity, um, who are also, generally speaking, living in marginalized communities and communities of color. So it's um, it's really a um, it's an intervention that is broader than a health intervention. It really is designed to um, get at that issue of health equity. And once people have been on the program for a while, um, are they forever changed or are, is it still, is it challenging for them to continue to maintain the kind of healthier uh, eating program that would have been tailored for them while they were under the medically tailored program? I, rail, I just want to put on the table that a lot of these people can stay on the program for quite some time, but at some point, I imagine they go off and have to um, figure it out for themselves. Yes, that's that's correct. And, and you know, that's part of why it's so important for us to have our education piece that's that accompanies the meal. So it's not just here's your meals for six months or a year. Good luck. See you later. It's we provide regular uh, counseling and education along that time to show, OK, now you've been you've been consuming this medically tailored meal appropriate for your diabetes for six months now. And 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 we give people the tools to start um, cooking that way themselves. And, and hopefully that ideally they'll, if for instance, if you have type two diabetes, you'll help pre- prevent developing heart disease. And you'll also be able to cook your own medically tailored meal or meals that are appropriate for your health condition. And Olivia, you've seen that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that is more what we focus on. And we work uh, with community servings, who's right around the corner from us. And so patients may start with community servings and then uh, come to a teaching kitchen class. And I know community servings also has their own teaching. So I think that partnership and that pairing of acute need while thinking uh, what tools does a person need moving forward and maybe what their family needs is kind of the complete solution. Um, Jane? Yeah, I, I, it's absolutely the case that providing those nutrition educational materials is important. And and what we have also heard from clients is that the meal itself is a teaching uh, instrument. And so just being able to, to, you know, consume foods that people just don't typically eat, quinoa or grains that they don't eat, or even different vegetables, they've tasted it, they've tried it they've said, hmm, that's pretty good. And so they know, and they also just can, can recognize that this is a, a correct portion size for me. Um, so different elements of the meal itself can be used um, as education. Well, I have to say this conversation makes me kind of excited about the future of your work um, using food as medicine. Uh, I know that there are still a small number of organizations focused on this, but it seems pretty exciting um, from where I'm sitting. I hope you all agree. <laughs> it's it's definitely exciting. It, it's a movement, and I and I think it's one that we're going to see great development and expansion over the next few years. Okay. Well, I enjoyed having this conversation with all of you, and um, I am uh, so certain that. Um, well, I'm not certain, but I'm hoping that <laughs> there will be a great amount of expansion uh, sooner than later, and maybe in a year. We'll gather again and see what's happened. (laughs) So I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Olivia Weinstein is the Culinary Nutrition Director for Boston Medical Center. Jean Terranova is the Senior Director of Policy and Research at Community Servings. 
and Paul Hepfer is the CEO of Project Open Hand in California. Coming up, in 2022, Spanish singer Rosalia won Album of the Year, one of four Latin Grammys she raked in at the annual music award show for Latin musical artists who sing in Spanish or Portuguese. That followed her award for Best Latin Rock or Alternative Album at the 2020 Grammys, a category established for Latin singers 25 years ago. But this year, Puerto Rican rapper-singer Bad Bunny broke out of the niche Latin music category to make history. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 